Well, the uh, Bible says that Christians going into battle need to be the athletes and farmers and soldiers. And uh, when I come into the pulpit, I feel like I'm coming to uh, bring the Word of God and pour myself out as if a athlete or a farmer or a soldier. I was thinking, you know, I just want to empty the tank this morning. And uh, I want to give it to you from Matthew chapter 9. We're going to go through the end of chapter 9 this morning, beginning at verse 27. But I want to draw your attention to the end before we go to the beginning, just for you to look at a prayer request that is issued by the Lord Jesus in verse 38. He says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. My question for you this morning, which relates to the theme of our sermon is, are you ready to join this mission? Are you ready to be his laborer and join in to the mission? It's joining the mission that the Lord Jesus has given us to be part of. A lot of times people say, well, I don't know where to join up at church. I don't know what to do, but Really, I think we make it more complicated than it needs to be because it all begins with our heart that says, I'm willing to join the mission. I'm not talking about joining the church. I'm talking about joining his plan and program, which is to make disciples. The end of Matthew is the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go, therefore, make disciples. The word disciples is learner. Make learners, make followers of all nations. And we are part of this mission. We are part of this program. We are the recipients of mission work that was done before us to bring us into the mission. And now it's our turn to take this baton and pass it to someone else. To find someone who needs the word of God. To advance the kingdom of God from a mission post like Anchorage, Alaska, or from Anchorage Grace Church, or in a discipleship group, or in some kind of way that the Lord has brought someone into your life that needs bread, that needs meat. We need to be part of this program. This is what has been called before the invisible advancement of the kingdom of God. And I like the word invisible because though disciple-making is actual, it's physical, it's meeting with someone, a lot of times it's behind the scenes. It's work that is exponentially happening around us that we can't always quantify or know. It's not gathering a crowd in a stadium. It's not having a rally. It's not even an evangelistic program where you can quantify hands raised or people signing cards. This is the, the organic living work that is done within the church and through the body of Christ as you meet people and you find people who want to learn more about Jesus and you tell them more about Jesus and more about what he's taught you. This is 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul finding Timothy, a disciple who'd been led to the Lord by Lois Eunice, his grandparent and his mother who'd raised him in the Lord, raised him in the truth, raised him in the sacred scriptures, which were able to make him wise to salvation. And then there he is at Lystra, right at the right time when Paul is passing through. Paul finds this young man commended by the Christian community and says, will you follow me? And like a good 
Jewish um, tradition would, would say you are a follower who follows a rabbi, who follows a teacher. But Jesus in this text is opening up a vision that's beyond just Jewish tradition. Because as these disciples are following Jesus, they're also being commissioned by Jesus to become those teachers that he was to them, to others. And it's Paul to Timothy, and then Timothy to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's, it's just trickle-down effect evangelism that captivates the world and, and gives the gospel around the nations. Today with modern technology, we have no excuse to not text someone the word of God, to not learn the word of God and give the word of God. We've got greater facility with modern technology and media that's explosive if we will just but leverage it and connect with people and connect them to truth. I think of the Gutenberg press that initiated the copying of the word of God and the promotion of the word of God into the world. Whether Reformation cry in the 1500s from the Latin phrase post-Tenebrox lux, after darkness, after middle, age, middle Ages darkness, there was light because the word of God went into the common man's language. And so the plowman could hear the word of God in his own language and read the Bible for himself for the first time. We have the great opportunity to join the mission, to do what Jesus did where he was he was commissioning the 12. That's chapter 10. So it's going from chapter 9, pray this prayer earnestly, passionately, that God will provide laborers. More people to pick the fruit that's going to be one for us. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's, Jesus models this by identifying 12 disciples. It's the beginning of chapter 10. 12 apostles who will be sent to the people of God, the Jews first. And then that will populate, as we know through the book of Acts, into the Gentiles and the nations. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, the 12 became the 120, and the 120 um, became 3,000, and 3,000 became 5,000, and so it goes from there. And we are living in the wake of this work, which is mission-making, disciple-making. And I, I want to just create that as a theme leading into um, verse 27, leading into this theme to understand that these mission moments that Jesus had were to model for us what it should be like even in the 21st century. We might not be those who can heal blind men or cause people who are mute to speak, but we can see what's behind all of these miracles and see what really Jesus is doing beneath the miracle in the hearts of the people because that's what we get to be a part of. We get to do the soul surgery. We get to solve the source of all the problems rather than the symptoms. Jesus solved the symptoms. To say that he's Messiah who can solve the source. And the source is sin. And sin is dealt with by the gospel. And we've got the gospel to give out. And so let's see how Jesus did it and follow his pattern of making disciples. First of all, when you join this mission, you're going to be someone who meets bold believers. Look at verses 27 through 31. It says, and as Jesus passed on from there... Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But... They went away and spread his fame through all that district. 
So we're going to meet two blind men. Jesus has just healed Jairus' daughter, bringing her from death to life, raising her from the dead. That amazing miracle would have been something that people would have been talking about immediately. And so crowds are swarming around Jesus again as he leaves that place. And during that time, two blind men run up. And these blind men, we need to understand them in the context of, we don't understand, we don't know how they became blind. Was it a congenital disease or were they blind from birth? We don't know, but they were blind nevertheless, known to be that way. Not being able to see, they were able to hear Jesus Christ. They knew about him. They probably had heard his teachings and probably their blindness kept them from being beguiled by the hype of miracles. Um, The miracles are real and legitimate and validating for Jesus to be who he said he was as Messiah, but they wanted him. They were looking for him. They were looking for the Messiah through the eyes of faith, even though they could not physically see him. Running probably stride for stride to catch up with Jesus, even though they were handicapped in sight. They wanted to be with him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. They had heard Jesus, Romans 10, 17. They had heard him and they wanted him. And they're saying, have mercy on us, son of David. And I want to bring that out to say that these were bold believers. They were believers. Uh, I think, you know, some that I study will say they were coming to faith in Christ. Their blindness is a metaphor for them not seeing Christ. And then they genuinely believed. But we need to understand that they had the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 35, there were particular marks of the Messiah that they would have understood and clung to. And one of the marks of the Messiah in Isaiah 35 is, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and then the ears and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The miracle of giving sight to the blind was not something that's ever recorded as happening in the Old Testament. It may have happened miraculously, we don't know, but this for sure was a mark of the Messiah. He was giving sight to the blind. It gave them interest in getting to Jesus to vindicate that he is the son of David. They already knew he was the son of David, someone coming from the line of David. David, who was the pinnacle king of the Old Testament to foreshadow and depict the king of kings and Lord of lords, saying, this is the Messiah. We're running up to him. We're declaring to him, it says, with a crying, loud voice, have mercy on us, son of David. Did they want to gain their physical sight? Of course they did. Of course they did. But the greater point is that this is the promised king. And this is proving out as Jesus interacts with them. When verse 28 says, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? He's asking them. I don't think it's as much a test to see if they are genuine believers as it is to just affirm that they are. He brings them privately into a house. This is not some sort of external display. This is not a hype scenario where two blind men are suddenly going to be able to see and that being done in front of the crowds. He's doing it privately. He's vindicating who they are in their own faith and their their genuine belief in the Lord Jesus. This is, these are people as if they're coming to church as believers, but they're affirming that they are genuine followers of him. 
What is their response? It was what Nathan just mentioned to us. It's the yes, Lord moment of the faith. True believers will respond with boldness. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. It's why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Are you a believer? Yes, Lord. Are you a believer? Yes, Lord. Do you believe that I am who they said I was to be? That I am Messiah? That I can make the blind see? Yes, Lord. You are son of David. That's what is going on here. The Messiah. Without hesitation, they are affirming him for who he said he was. In all circumstances, no matter how desperate, no matter how difficult, do you believe Jesus can help you, can minister to you, can be the difference in your life? We need to be able to say with a rallying cry in our own heart, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, your promises are real. They are true. It's, in one sense, it's my opportunity to stir you, to encourage you that all the promises of God are yes and amen. We can claim promises for ourselves and Jesus is there for us. They make a bold confession and Jesus makes a bold response in verse 29. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. It's immediate. Their eyes were opened. And I believe that it's amazing that they gained sight. But what's deeper than Jesus solving the symptom of sin, which is from the curse of sin, the effects of a fallen world, is Jesus is the Messiah who solves the deeper issue, which is the sin in our hearts. That's the source. That's the problem. And Jesus solves this. Now, whether he solved it in this moment or had solved it before, is probably for you to decide. I believe that Jesus had already saved these men and that's why they were running up to him. But it's amazing that the deeper issue is not the physical sightedness that they now had, but the change of heart. R.C. Sproul said, what would it be like for the first thing that you were able to physically see to be the face of Jesus Christ? The one whom they loved. You are Jesus. Yes, Lord, we are followers of you. False teaching will say that if you don't have enough faith, you won't be healed. And that's a legalism trap. It's a performance trap that people will try to bait you into to say, my life is crumbling. My life is not going well because I'm not mustering enough faith within myself. And really that kind of faith is faith in faith. You're, you're pr- placing your trust in your own self and your own efforts instead of giving yourself to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you're all that I need. You're all that I have. That kind of legalism should be um, run from. The core issue that Jesus is solving is heart issues. He's the one who heals, but he's also the one who saves. He's the savior. So what do they do about this? Well, Jesus says and issues a command, don't tell anyone. What would you do if you're in that situation? You couldn't see, and now you can see. You didn't know how to get to people, and now suddenly you know how to get to people. Without a guide, without a cane, you can just tell people. I don't know that we can condemn these men for what they did, but at the same time, the Bible is silent as to whether or not it grieved Jesus that they went out and shared who he was. 
I think their excitement got the better of them. Jesus wanted to keep on his timetable for when he would go to the cross. He wanted to do his mission in the way that the Father had laid it out for him to do, and he was going to do it that way. But the crowds would swarm and they would say, save me from something that's a symptom of sin rather than dealing with the source of sin. And Jesus wanted to keep it clear that he was there to deal with the source of sin, not the symptoms of sin. I think we think our Christian life of disciple making and being part of the mission is somehow stunted because we're not casting out demons and we're not healing people of their symptoms. But we get to deal with the source rather than the symptoms. People want the COVID-curing Jesus. They want the miracle-saving Jesus. They want the political Biden, save us from Biden Jesus. They want the save us from critical race theory Jesus, the social justice Jesus. But we have the Messiah, the true Jesus, who deals with saving in one area. He saves you from your sins. That's what he is. Genesis 3 brought sin into this world. It entered into our life. We were born in sin, and he is the Savior from our sins. If we keep it simple rather than blurring the issue with the multiplied million symptoms of sin, then we will keep our mission clear. Jesus' whole mission culminated on his death at his death on the cross and vindicating that by rising three days later. Jesus is the one who solves our greatest issue. It's sin. And you know what the greatest outcome of our sin is? If left undealt with, we have to face the wrath of God. Think about that. The scariest thing to you and me should be the issue of the wrath of God. People are born in sin and they are at enmity with God who's angry at sin. He's not angry at the symptoms. He's not angry at the effects. He's angry at sinners who are willfully rejecting the grace of God. And Romans 1 talks all about that. That's why the perversion is happening in our world. That's why God is taking off his hand of common grace in our society and exposing it for what it really is. Is it really worse than it ever was before? Practically, yes. In the heart level, no. All of the perversions and all of the inversions and all of the inequities and all of the accusations against Jesus, against truth, against rightness and righteousness, it was all there. It was all in the DNA of all of the sinfulness of man under the curse. We've always been at enmity with God. We've always been under the threat of the wrath of God. But saving grace and saving mercy from the Messiah is what solves the source of all the problems. And that is Jesus makes um, peace through the cross. If we will but take it and say, Jesus, by your grace alone, I want to be saved. It's nothing I can do. It's nothing I can earn. You're not the savior of the symptoms. You are the savior of my soul. And I give it to you. I will follow you as Lord. You died, you were buried, you rose again. That sacrifice is what solves the source of all the problems. I remember the first time I met a blind person and interacted with a blind person. I was a child, I don't know how young I was. I think I was a preschool age child in church, in my little Baptist church that I grew up in and went into a room and with some kids and this lady came in and she had the walking cane and She had Braille, and she introduced us into what it was like for her to be blind, and she would read by taking her fingers across the dots and 
And she said, why don't you take a necktie and put it around your eyes and just walk around the room? And I remember feeling, you know, the darkness and, and the helplessness that I felt in my own heart in that moment as a little child. And it was a, making a strong impression on me. I could still see her in my mind's eye. But what I really remember about her was her smile because she was at peace with God. Because God had not solved her symptom of sin, the, the effects of sin, having blind, being blind, but had solved the source of sin in her own heart because she was at peace with God. That's what was premier with these blind men. A lot will say the blindness was the metaphor of being unsaved and now saved, but really the blindness also could be the lesser priority um, as opposed to the greater priority. The lesser priority was the physical blindness and the greater priority was solved in their salvation. Charles Spurgeon said Jesus was the great itinerant preacher. He was on the move. He was on the move in the mission. He was also part of a medical mission, but he was on an evangelistic tour giving the gospel. Two patients have left surgery and now another patient is brought in immediately. And you pick up on this in verse 32. It says, as they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. You have a man who comes in who's under demon oppression. And I want to say that when you join the mission, you'll meet bold believers, but you'll also meet up with demonic oppression. It's always there. The devil is the Prince of the power of the air, he's the god of this age, he's the deceiver, he's the accuser, he's the one who beguiles people, he sends satanic fiery darts, he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he's the fallen angel who led a third of the angels after him. He made his own disciples and he is in constant warfare against unbelievers to keep them under damnation where they are blinded by their own self. They're blinded from the beauty of the gospel. Second Corinthians chapter 4 says that um, the, the darkness has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. People who are unsaved are called children of the dark. They are blinded by sins and they, they can't hear truth as truth. I think we underestimate the power of the devil and we underestimate the power of the devil in our own lives who is constantly um, baiting us to follow after worldly ways. Think of Jesus in the wilderness, turn stones to bread, feed your flesh, feed your appetite, um, jump off the temple, test God, test God. Hey, he'll, he'll take care of you. Just do things whimsically and God will make up the difference in your life. Be presumptuous. These are temptations. And finally, bow down. Just, just follow Satan and I'll give you everything without making your life hard. Your life will be good and easy. You can have the crown without the cross, Jesus. Just do it this way. These were the temptations that Jesus did not fall to, that Eve and Adam and Adam and Eve fell to. They, they believed the satanic lie that God was withholding their best, that they should be like God themselves. But these are no different than the world the flesh and the things that we want, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life that First John talks about in worldliness that we're supposed to run from. Does this resonate with you? These are the temptations. Satan is real. He is tempting you with these things. 
This is what Satan wants for us, I think, more than anything. He wants us to misconstrue the real battle. He wants us to battle things up here. You know, the critical race theory issues. I'm not saying that they aren't wrong and we're not supposed to discern them. There is definite false religion that's going all around and invading the church that we need to discern and refute and repudiate. Um, But with all of the things that are out there, the social justice warrior stuff, the racism stuff, and all of those issues that are out there that the church is going, oh, we got to solve. Let's not forget the deeper battle, which is that Jesus died on a cross so that people could be free from their sins and come out from under demonic oppression. If you deal with the source, they'll be able to deal with the symptom. If you ignore the source and just go after the symptom, then you're going to leave people in their sins. Do you know how people deal with issues? They deal with issues when they understand truth and understand discernment. And the only way people can understand truth and have discernment is by being saved from their sins and having their, the blinders taken off, the satanic blinders where they're under oppression. And Jesus here is showing us that he deals with the source And that by dealing with the source, the symptom is solved. Look at verse 32. It was a demon-oppressed man. He was mute, meaning he could not speak. This was keeping him disconnected from the world. He would not be able to physically confess Christ as Lord. You could do that in your heart. But again, it was delimiting delimiting for this man. And it was demonic influence. The demon had to be cast out. How was the demon keeping this man from speaking? Who knows, class? Well, nobody knows. We don't know. There's a lot we don't know in the demonic realm. We know that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We could do that, right? We could get into a wrestling match with someone and, and you know, wrestle around physically. But we need to understand that what's happening all the time is we are in a battle against satanic temptations, things that are stifling people, that are keeping people from confessing Jesus as Lord. And this man was mute. He had a problem. He could not speak. He needed help. And where the two blind men willingly ran up to Jesus as, I believe, believers, this man is brought to Jesus, I think, as an unbeliever. He's under demonic oppression. A Christian can be tempted by the devil, but the devil can do nothing with his soul. But this man was under oppression. He was isolated from the world. He was disconnected, I think, from Christ. And the demon was cast out. And this was an amazing miracle. It amazed the people. The crowds, verse 33, marveled at this. They marveled at this symptom being solved. But really, I believe that this man's blinders were removed in this moment. It's interesting to me that Isaiah 35, remember how I mentioned that before, referencing how the Messiah would give sight to the blind? Well, Isaiah 35 goes on in verse 6, and it says, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and listen, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. This is vindicating Messiahship. Jesus is the one who not only gives sight to the blind, but he allows people who could not speak. They were under this kind of oppression and he delivers them and they're able to speak. Similarly to the precursor event with Zechariah who was struck mute because he didn't believe that, that his wife was going to give birth to John the Baptist. And 
And then his tongue was loosed. Well, this man in the same way was loosed from not being able to speak, but also from the demonic oppression. Luke 4, Jesus is pulling the scroll in an early event to say, I'm Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah. Um, I think it's 61. He's the fulfillment of the the prophecy of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. Listen to this, to set at liberty those who are what? Oppressed. That's what Jesus was doing. You say, well, how can I be a part of something like that? I'm not gonna be casting out demons that I know of anytime soon. (laughs) To cast out means to literally call out Call away from and throw away from somebody. What are, how do we involve ourselves in this kind of work? Let me tell you this. Every time you wield the sword of the spirit, don't underestimate the power. We shouldn't underestimate the power of Satan and his activity. And we should even more not underestimate the power of giving the word of God. Just by me speaking the truth and love to you, powerful things are happening. People can be saved eternities can be um, diverted from this way to this way, death to life. Um, The word of God reshapes and refashions people into a trajectory of being like Jesus as opposed to being like the world. People are stumbling around with no direction, in darkness, living for their flesh, misguided, on the cusp of all kinds of disaster, and you give them the truth and it can set them free. It will. Text your friends. Set up appointments. Meet with people with the word of God. Use the Bible. Read the Bible. Give the Bible. Make disciples. Make learners. I know that a lot of this activity happens, but if you're not doing it, you're not part of this mission. This is the mission of being a Christian. It's the mission of the church. It's engaging people with the Bible. It's important to do. Don't watch this. Don't ignore your kids with the Bible. Give them the Bible. Set up times for them to hear you teach them the Bible. You say, well, my kid's a teenager now. All the better. Meet with them as teenagers. My kid's a young adult now. Meet with them with the Bible. And you just do it. You say, but it's awkward. That's right. But you do it anyway. And this is something that I live. I have to go through the threshold of my kids are in Bible classes, they're in chapels, they're, they're in church all the time. They have to listen to Pete Johnson sometimes. I mean, you know, the, they're hearing the word of God all the time. So you could say, well, they're getting it and that's good. But there's nothing like dad sitting down with their kid with the Bible. It's different. Or mom doing that or grandma doing that or grandpa doing that. That's what you do. It's part of the mission work of making disciples. You say, how can I do it with other people? Well, God will bring people in your life just like these blind men and just like this, this mute man. He'll bring people into your life and, and they're like a patient in a clinic and you say, I'm gonna meet the need of this patient right now with God's word. You just watch it happen. You watch God work and don't ignore what he's doing in kingdom work. You don't want people to fall prey to what the Pharisees fell prey to in verse 34. Listen, you have crowds that were amazed. They were marveling. They were like, wow, this is amazing. I I can't believe it. I mean, they probably had seen someone 
delivered from a demon, but this was especially powerful. We don't know what the mute man said. It's immaterial. He just started speaking. He was able to speak. That's amazing. But that's not necessarily saving faith, but it had everyone's attention. But then you have people who are Pharisees and they're hardening up. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. They were close to Jesus. They were too close to the power of God with a hardened heart and it fully calcified where they were. They were apostatizing. They were blaspheming the Holy Spirit, attributing God's power against Satan to Satan's power. They were saying that Jesus, they they weren't denying that Jesus had done something powerful. They were just attributing that power to Satan rather than to God. It's the ultimate damnable testimony of apostasy. It's where people will say, well, the Bible is not only neutral or one religion to choose, that's the crowds being amazed, it's now the Bible is hate speech. It's damnable. It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying Jesus is not God. People are for sure being um, beguiled by and led by Satan when they try to add to the gospel or take it away or distort it or twist it or invert it. When they try to neutralize it from being what solves the source of sin in someone's life. When they discount that God is real and say that, you know, God is just science and he's not really out there. There's no judgment. There's no accountability. There's no wrath of God coming. There's no real eternal hell. All of these are satanic um, lobs to get people to ignore the issue, to ignore where the source really lies, which is their own sin that needs to be solved. Rejecting Christ, rejecting the gospel. Hebrews 6 talks about how awful it is to trod over the gospel again. You're so close to the gospel. You're in church. You've seen the power of God. You've encountered Christ. You've encountered the work of the Holy Spirit. And then you say, it's all just a sham. It's all just wrong. And I'm walking away. That's what the Pharisees are doing where they are saying he cast out demons by the prince of demons. They're not denying the power. They're just just saying that the source of Jesus' work is Satan himself. They, unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the spiritual realm, but they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, hardening up like Pharaoh. Matthew's going to take on this accusation in Matthew 12, 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, it's completely illogical to say that Jesus, um, by the power of Satan, is working against Satan. Nobody is denying that there was a demon that was holding on to this man's tongue that needed to be dealt with. They're just attributing what Jesus did to the devil. Say, well, how misguided is that? How misconstrued is someone's thinking to say that? But think about what our culture is saying today about everything. Just flipping stuff on its head. We're not far from this kind of apostasy. These are the religious people who are trusting in traditions, their own pride and their own prejudices. Satanic lies are so subtle. Apostasy is not always this overt. It's usually a drifting, slippery slope. Watch how your kids think. Watch how your teenagers think. Watch how you think. Watch what you read. It's slippery. Old slew foot, right? We'll get in there and get into your heart and get into your mind and get you to start trending away from the pure gospel of Christ. The simple, pure devotion to Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 says. 
1 Corinthians 12 talks about how someone in, I would ask you to turn over there, someone in the assembly can um, be misguided. Someone in idol worship, um, bringing that into the house of God. That's what 1 Corinthians is talking about. And Paul's saying, don't do that. He says, therefore, in verse 3, I want you to understand, no one in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Now, that's a possibility, though. People were actually syncretizing idol worship in with their practices in the early church. And it was coming out of people's mouths where they were cursing Christ in ways. It's a subtle drift where suddenly find, suddenly someone finds themselves in a hard-hearted state where they're saying things that are blaspheming Christ. When people bring up a different Jesus, they, it's in the name of Jesus, but it's a different Jesus. They've added something to Jesus or they've taken away from Jesus. They will over-humanize Jesus to the point where they're denying the deity of Christ. Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. The true Christ is the one that's revealed from Scripture, not created from the um, social justice needs and things that are, that are out there in the world that people are promoting. People are trying to solve the symptoms with a fake Jesus rather than the true Jesus. True saving faith, though, says Jesus is Lord. No one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. That means no one can say Jesus is Lord and mean it genuinely from conviction except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides us to the true Christ. You say, how do we deal with all these things? This sounds very, very complicated. Just put on the armor of God, live the Christian life, and give the word to people. That's what I love about our church. Our church is, um, it's just basic basic. We train lay people. We have Bible studies. We have um, women's Bible study that happens, you know, on Thursdays. We have different men's groups that meet, coffee shop times on Wednesday mornings. We have a seminary class with a a few young men um, where we give the word of God, where they're going through uh, curriculum. We have um, lay layman studies where they study the word of God in individual ways and corporate ways here. We broadcast the Word of God on the radio um, here locally, and then it's repurposed into mission work. We just um, found out that there's a village of 668. Um, it's called Norwick, and I'm still learning where that is in northwest, north-northwest Alaska. They get this broadcast now. I just found that out just this week. Well, we just added another village um, where the Word of God is going out. I mean, they're... they're They out there are learning about us who are here, and we care about them. We care about the word going out, but it's that simple. We just give the Bible, and the Bible does the work. The Holy Spirit does the work in the heart, solving the source rather than focusing on the the symptoms. And so that brings us to our final um, portion of this text in Matthew 9. Let's go to the end, and that is... You'll not only meet bold believers if you join the mission and you'll face demonic oppression if you're on the mission. You'll finally, you'll melt with compassion for the lost. You say, what is the driving motivation? Why would I want to be around bold believers? Why would I want that? Why why do I want that kind of accountability? Why do I want to face hard, awkward situations that could be Satan-induced where you're giving the gospel and seeing things happen spiritually? Well, it's because you have compassion for the lost. When your heart is transformed, you 
melt inside for people. Verse 35, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out the laborers into his harvest. Um, Jesus, it was said, was turning the synagogues and the seminaries. He was preaching the gospel, preaching truth. He was healing everyone everywhere. He was vindicating and validating that he's Messiah and he is, he is who he said he was and he's brought heaven to earth. But his priority is teaching and proclaiming. Kerukh's the gospel. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing diseases and afflictions. When he saw the crowds In the scope of all of his walking ministry, he saw these crowds and he had compassion for them, meaning the Greek word splagnos. He felt a deep passion in his heart and in his stomach, literally his bowels for people because they were harassed and helpless. He saw people who were misguided, who were self-destructing and self-destructive. People who um, didn't have guidance, didn't have direction, didn't have hope, didn't have Jesus, didn't have the truth path. They didn't have the narrow road. They didn't have a shepherd. They were straying away. Jesus saw that, acknowledged that, and felt that. And as a believer, if you want to be on the mission, you need to look at the people and you need to feel compassion for them. One of my mentors from seminary said that he regularly would go to a coffee shop. And he's a real evangelistic guy um, from East L.A., and I respect him a lot. But one of the things he said that he did regularly was go to a coffee shop and just look at the people and allow for God to give him compassion for them. I want to have compassion for people. It's an interesting thing to do, to watch people and feel it and think they need the gospel. They need the truth. Because otherwise, if we're not motivated, we're not going to do anything. We're joining the mission or we're on the sidelines. Joining the mission, addressing the source, going into the people, feeling this, seeing the harassed and helpless, the sheep without a shepherd. Those left of themselves with no leadership from the Lord need us to show them the Lord. It's why we do what we do. It's the ministry of Christ. Let me give you one more motivation. Look at the prayer request. You say, my prayer life is weak. We'll pray this this week and see what happens. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know what that means? That means the reason that we're not seeing more fruit is because we don't have more laborers. There's plenty of crop to be picked. We just need more laborers to pick the crop. You say, why is that encouraging? Well, it's encouraging because Jesus wins. The kingdom of God is going to advance. The harvest is coming in. We just need to join the party. That's what's going on. We need to pray and motivate and call people to be part of this mission. That was what drove me to preach the sermon in the way that it is being preached. Where is it that you need to join the mission? 
And this is not a sign up for a WANA call or sign up for Sunday school or we need more workers in the nursery. Maybe it should be. But what I'm saying is it's a drive in your heart where you guys say, I have compassion for the lost. I feel that people need the gospel. I want to be part of the solution in people's lives. I want to be a disciple maker, but I also want to pray in faith, realizing that Jesus wins. Nothing's going to stop his mission. Jesus is always going to win, and he was meant to win. He's the Lord of the harvest. Now, I'm, I'm a sports fan. I freely admit that. I, I root for losing teams and um, often will um, tape on my D- DVR. You call it taping because of VHS and all that. But anyway, I, I tape um, you know, games. And the worst thing that can happen to me is when I tape a game that I really want to watch that's already happened, but I want to watch it as if it's in real time. I even yell for people to, you know, advance the football and I scold people for dropping the ball and things like that, even though it happened like three hours before. But the worst thing that happens to me is when somebody tells me the score. It's the ultimate spoiler alert. And it's like, oh, I was really looking forward to that. Now I'm not going to watch it because usually when I hear the score, it's that my team lost. So there's no reason to go through that roller coaster event in my own heart but sometimes I'll hear the score ahead of time and it's like yeah but your team won so then I'll still watch I'll still enjoy it and anticipate and I'll think well they can't they can't like lose right because they won so I'm okay and but this is the kind of motivation that Jesus is saying for us to have when we pray pray that the lord of the harvest will provide and send out laborers into the harvest it's going to happen we need to pass the baton of disciple making and we need to pray that the lord will bring more disciple makers and to bring in the harvest now i had um kind of a church event this week on cell phone i was talking about using technology leveraging technology to connect with people We've never been able to do it like um, today. The pastoral life is made easier in a lot of ways because you can text people and encourage them all the more without um, the door-to-door visiting of the old days. I mean, that can come into play. But I was able to uh, call a, um, a lady who's gone to our church for years and years, and she and her husband have snowbirded you know, from Arizona back and forth, and I asked her permission if I could share this. She wanted me to make a whole sermon about this. But I'll just wrap with this. Um, many of you know Dave and Carol Staus, you know, and their kids. And Carol this week was um, diagnosed, or it came out that she had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And Carol is a very high energy, very involved, very direct person. Um, and what I found in our conversation together is that all of that energy and direct speech um, has now been turned vertical. And she is trusting God and like I preached last week, she's seeing death and facing it, looking at it in the face and seeing beyond death and going, I'm going to go to heaven. And I'm excited about that, but I'm excited about my ministry and mission here in day-to-day living and the influence I can have even though I have cancer and stage four cancer. And so she and Dave and I were on speakerphone together and we cried together. And But the most impactful thing that she said to me was this. She said, I always knew as a Christian, that God was in control of everything. And she was quoting scripture about God being in control. But she said, what I've come to know and believe now is that I was never in control of anything. 
one thing to believe God is in control of everything, but it's another thing to come to terms with the fact that along the way, though you thought you were in control of a lot, you were never really in control of anything at all. God is in control of all of it. And he takes the, the burden off of us when we will just believe that. We take his yoke upon our backs because his burden is easy and his load is light. That's what it means to trust God with everything. John Newton, who was radically converted out of being a slave trader, when he believed, he wrote the song Amazing Grace. He said, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. 